people just like you have taken the brave step to do this thing we call work differently. They tell their self-unlimited story to inspire and encourage you. Another story begins now. Today's conversation is a little bit different. I've invited someone who is an expert to share their knowledge, which may come with some stories of their own. Uh, the person in today's conversation with me is Will Snow, an employment lawyer in South Australia, and we're going to talk about employment relationships, protections and contracts, so that you, the individual, can use such information positively and powerfully. Welcome, Will. Well, thank you very much for having me, Helen. Lovely to be here. One of the key ideas in being self-unlimited is that a person is a sovereign, or that is, has sovereignty that is the power of self-determination over their workscape. And that workscape is a concept of the stuff I've done in the past, the stuff I'm doing in the present, of which there might be multiple things going on simultaneously that are work-like, and what I might do in the future. And where things get interesting and sometimes challenging is when an individual's workscope includes an employment relationship with another legal entity that has its own perspective and interest to serve. And that exists within the societal constraints and expectations of employment law. So let's kick off with an understanding, if you wouldn't mind sharing, Will. What is the relationship that exists between employer and employee? Because, well, we're not slaves because we get paid, right? Absolutely. Although there are some situations in which people can do work without being paid. You could be um, an intern or you could be doing work experience and we can think about why those situations are different mm. from employment. And the really big distinction between those situations where people might be volunteers as well in community organisations or yes. maybe doing work experience is that there's an intention to create a legal relationship of employment and that has mm. several hallmarks whereby we look at it and we say, yes, that is employment. And what right. often is a really important part of it is control. Yes. And we're also thinking as well, often, in fact, Helen, in terms of exclusivity. Okay. There is, of course, the famous Italian play by Carlo Goldini called The Servant of Two Masters, which is a play, a Renaissance farce, which explores the inherent impossibility of a person being employed by two people simultaneously. And I wow. That, okay. And oh, look, it's lovely. There's lots of shutting doors and opening of windows and mistaken identities and all those sorts of things. but the reason why it's a it's a nice example to have in our mind is that mm. for many of your listeners, they may be thinking about other aspects of their life or multiple pursuing multiple opportunities at once. Um, mm. in lots of, if it's employment or, or contracting or, or or being self-employed, but one of the key things with employment is that at any one time, you can really only have the one employer. So we can think about that in terms of full-time work. If I'm mm. a full-time employee working in a shop or I'm working for a medical practice or I'm working in a construction site, I can't also be employed by someone else. One really? Only wow. one of me. I, I cannot be the servant of two masters and we can explore that language directly, but there's this fundamental issue there that I can't act in conflict of interest of mm. my obligations I owe to one employer yes. as opposed to obligations I may owe to another employer, let alone a business that I own, let alone another family member whose interests may conflict with that of my employer and, and the employment mm. relationship. 
that brings up two things for me. One, I look and think, in terms of is there another kind of relationship we have in our society where there's a kind of exclusivity? And we understand that by law, we are not allowed to be married to two people at the same time. Interestingly enough, we're allowed to be the child of two parents at the same time, but maybe depending on other people who may have some guardianship responsibility, that might be something that gets spread around. And the second thought is how does that face up to the reality these days where people have multiple gigs because maybe they can't get full-time work that one job can provide the revenue and the other things that they need so they are doing multiple part-time roles or casual roles or whether that's uh, working for an employer for some days and then doing uber driving on the side or maybe doing a bit of a side hustle at the weekend markets how does that fit with the modern day reality well, that's absolutely the case. And the only tension there is when you are simultaneously working for two people at once. So if I'm doing a role, which is I can get hours Monday to Thursday, and yes. I'm free Friday and Saturday, and I'm free again on Sunday, then there's nothing that prevents me from working for three different employers or indeed ah, one, got one you. employer and, and two different contractors. But as long as those times don't exactly overlap yes all of that can be managed and the key thing also that i'd say with employment are certainly exclusivity generally a significant degree of control but also there are those obligations that come with it but it also creates and we have created in, in australia and and also in states and territories really significant rights and these are rights to compensation if mm. i get injured so that's continued income as well as paying for medical expenses if I injure my back or if I, I might have a psychiatric injury, rights to annual leave, rights to sick leave and carers leave. And of course, casuals have a different set of rights and, and usually aren't entitled to those leave-based rights or indeed rights to redundancy pay or other entitlements that arise from mm -hmm. employment and its termination. And then you've got contractors who are in there as well, who are in that sort of no man's territory of they don't necessarily see themselves as a business. However, they're recognised as being their own entity, whether that's from a tax office point of view. And I imagine from a legal point of view, while well, they might not actually have a PTY limited entity that, from which they're working from. Yeah, that's right. So employment is the traditional and still one of the probably, probably the most common way in which people get work done and they mm. get paid for the work they do. But look, absolutely, you could be a contractor and that's when you are operating your business, whether as a sole trader. So a sole trader is, you know, Will Snow, just with my own ABN, I could form a company and I could be working for my company and the company is the entity that is contracting with the world and providing services. Yes. You can also work, obviously, in partnership with people. That's another legal structure. Mm. Or you could work as an officer. So you could be a director. And in fact, that's really how most of the work in our community organisations and not-for-profits gets done, where you have a committee of an incorporated association and they yes. are all office holders who are doing work, but they're not employees, but they still have obligations under law. Mm. And they also have legal personality, which also brings with it in some situations, some exposure to risk as well mm. if, if things go wrong. You mentioned the word control before. Which entity are you talking about as having control? Me, the employee, or the employer, or both of us? I'm thinking about it from the employer perspective. So mm. 
control allows me to say, and this is the legal principles that operate in Australia, mm. I can say, Helen, I am employing you to do this job between these times. These are the requirements by which success will be measured. These are the things that you need to do to maintain your job and to have an opportunity to maybe earn a commission or a bonus or to mm. maintain employment. So that's what I'm talking about when, when I think about control. So the ability of the employer effectively to dictate what success looks like and the employee's obligation then is, is to work within that. And if that's not acceptable to them, then to leave or maybe more relevant for your listeners is really what does the negotiation look like in a situation where you have a rare skill or you know that you offer a lot more to the business than simply a warm body in a seat. Mm. And that's, that's, I think, really quite a sort of a, an interesting sort of discussion to mm. have about how far does the control and, and what is the actual power dynamic between employers and employees. Indeed. And I imagine there's an element where if you are, if we think of the employment life cycle, if there's a point where I'm outside the organization, where it's arguably, if it's in a, a market where people are desperate for employees, then there's a perception I maybe have more power to negotiate what I want before I get into the role and then set that understanding and have a shared agreement. Whereas if I'm in the role, it's maybe a little bit difficult to back out of and say, no, hang on, I want a different arrangement here which and you know given the world that we're in with hybrid working and flexible working arrangements becomes an interesting thing where I'm not sure many people are necessarily aware of what actually is in their contract sure they read it at the point they signed it but maybe not with a view of actually I'm tying myself here to certain obligations and requirements and maybe I need to do something different to ask for that to be different. And I heard something recently where particularly it was like working in the office. Some people were like, oh, no, lots of organizations are allowing people to work from home. And, and one organization went, no, our contract actually says that you will come to this physical location. And so while there's maybe some flexible consideration to actually we're making an organizational policy that's different, Actually, in your contract, it actually says about coming to this physical location. So I imagine there's a tension going on right now in terms of what you agreed to and what you might have wanted to agree to and how you would actually negotiate for that. Look, absolutely, Helen. And the, what's interesting with that example that you raised there is that there can be a lot of understandings or policies indeed about where work can be done, and, and we've all gone through that enormous social experiment that we're now on the other side of, of course, with the pandemic. Yes. But when you're receiving a contract as an employee, it's written by the employer. Now, they might have got legal advice, they might have, have a very experienced HR manager, but there are usually a dozen or so issues which, mm. if in doubt, the favourable interpretation or the or the real power will come back to often the employer. That is, mm. I wrote this agreement and this is what I say goes. So mm. an example of su such drafting might be, look, you will snow, we're employing you as a lawyer in this location. However, we reserve the right to change this from time to time in accordance with business needs. Mm. So I might say, well, hold on. I, I thought I was a lawyer and now you're employing me to do another job. Now, 
depending on the wording of the contract mm. and the situation, that might be contractually permitted because the mm. contract says, well, you can do that. If, on the other hand, it says you are employed to do this job and there's no such wording, then you can have some very tricky arguments and issues that say, well, look, I'm sorry, but you've, you've taken away my dotted reporting line to, to Trish, who's the CFO. Mm. That's a massive step down in status for me. Yeah. I'm no longer reporting to a member of the executive, you know, and uh, uh, my job's basically been made redundant now. Yeah, and it may have been so, that was a major determinant why I took this role over considering something else. Yeah, that's right. So so it, it does get really interesting when when roles change and organizational structures change, which they often which of course they often have to in response to business need because the world changes and to continue to fulfill the needs of, com- of a community if you're a not-for-profit or a community services organization or to continue to make a profit if you are a business you do need to adapt and often those discussions and that consultation step is really important to do and it's important to do right even if your contract might give you the right as an employer to dictate changes Mm. no one's going to find that at all palatable or acceptable Mm. if the outcome for them is a perceived drop in status or indeed salary. And that contract is gives me power too, doesn't it, as an individual to require the employer to abide by those rights or that agreement. Absolutely. So you have those you have set contractual rights to correct notice of termination to be provided to you, for your salary to be paid to you. And if mm. if the salary is not paid to you, then you can take your employer or former employer to court for that amount to be paid to you. And separate from the contract, then, is we can think about other policies which might Mm. deal with things like job share, flexible work arrangements, maybe even working from home arrangements. And then overarching all of that is the Australian states and territory laws, which, again, give additional rights and obligations. And one of the most key ones, which can get overlooked in some areas, is the right to a safe workplace and the and the obligation of an employer mm. to ensure that when I'm at work, my work is as safe as far as reasonably practicable, which mm. is a really concrete protection that every worker has. And especially when it comes to interpersonal conflict or situations where individuals may feel unsafe. And it's my sense too, I'm, I was living in Victoria, I'm not now, that I could get a contract from the Fair Work Agency and that contract could actually only be two pages long because many of the things that end up in a contract are actually already covered by law and don't need to be specified in a contract. However, I get that for many people, they aren't aware of all of their different rights and obligations. So is it a case that sometimes these things get put into a contract just to kind of raise the awareness? And in fact, there isn't the need for the level of detail in some contracts because it actually is just covered by law anyway. Yeah, that is the case. And in fact, under Australian law, you must provide what's called the Fair Work Information Statement, which is mm-hmm. on two pages. It sets out the minimum rate that you must be paid. It sets out your leave entitlements, your minimum entitlements to notice of termination and redundancy pay. So Helen, it's a two-pager. You can Google Fair Work Information Statement, and that is the essentials on yes. two pages. But then what a contract can deal with, it can talk about additional notice of termination provisions. And this is 
often what can be up for grabs is you can say, well, look, I want to have a longer notice of termination. Mm. I want to have three months notice if you want to terminate my employment, for example. Mm. So that can be something which is negotiated or indeed you might want to negotiate it downwards if you feel that three months is too long. Right. And there are other obligations with respect to, say, confidentiality and a really interesting one, and that is restraints on working for competitors after you leave employment yes. or indeed restraints and restrictions on poaching your former colleagues to come and work for you in a new business and they are they are the extras which do often create litigation that is disputes in the courts and mm. which can often be up for negotiation when you're looking at a new contract mm. i do recall there was a time that a job that i went for had a 26 page contract and I was like, whoa, what, how much actually needs to be in here in terms of engaging me? And there were some sections in there. Like you say, there was that one about the restraint. There was also around conflict of interest. And I get that. There's a, a professional practitioner. I want to be clear that I'm behaving in a way with integrity. One of the ones that was particularly interesting for me was around IP and the idea of if I created something while in the employ of that person, was it something that was created in, in the hours I was working for that person? Or was it created just at the time of employment? And even if it was created in the hours of while I was working for that person, did I have any rights to it? And because I'm a content creator, and some of the people who listen to this will be content creators, whether that's just sharing their ideas in the world, writing articles, maybe being a member of a community of practice or a meetup, or somebody who's actually writing a book, for example, or, or coming up with a particular template or a particular framework. What should I be thinking about if I'm a person like that when I've presented with a contract? Is it fair and reasonable that I could push back and negotiate for something different or some allowance for who I am and what I want to do while simultaneously working for an organisation? You absolutely can, but the only proviso or the point I put on that is that redrafting those sorts of clauses gets very technical mm. so there we're thinking about well what are my moral rights that is the right that I have to be known to the universe as the author of a work what otherwise are my intellectual property rights because if I create some intellectual property and again there can be you know arguments or, or tension around what actually is intellectual property and what are simply words that may otherwise attract copyright mm. is it something which is capable of protection by intellectual property laws but mm. the fundamental issue from an employer perspective and, and bearing in mind that i usually act for employers um, yes. although i do act for employees from time to time and also i don't do any intellectual property but the notion is essentially if i'm paying you i own it right and Anything that, that I is, create at any point in time while I'm employed, even if I created it on a Saturday afternoon, no, not my working no, hours. No, 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 no. If, it, if you create it outside of work and it has no and it has limited or no connection to work, the work mm. that you're doing, then that is yours. So right. things that you create in working time which relate to your job properly, they can see be seen to be the products of your work as mm. much as your labor was at the time as well. Right. However, your own insights, initiatives, projects, content that you create outside of work really should be yours. And I think 
if there's any ambiguity about that point in a contract and it's of importance to you, absolutely raise it. And, you know, yeah. raise it like with all negotiations, there are, you know, smart ways of negotiating things and and ways that can lead to conflict. So, What do you advise the employees when you're advising them about approaching such negotiations? I would encourage them to explain clearly what their objection and concern is mm. because most employers on and it, it depends on the role but we were talking about a contract that's 26 pages in length sometimes these things in organizations can be sort of become semi-sacred texts that can't be altered because yes. of the contract. that was my experience when i wanted to challenge some of the yeah, things yeah yeah and that's because this is you know we paid a lot of money for this contract whenever it has magic words in it and you can't alter the magic words. Mm. So that's often the reason why there is pushback about amendments to a contract. Mm. That said, when I have been raising concerns, tracking changes, or I've been responding to somebody's track changes, if their position is reasonable, then more often than not, the employer goes, great, we don't care because they've, they've really turned their mind to the issues that the employee is concerned about. So those sorts of negotiations are a really good example where you can't assume that you're going to be locked into some sort of adversarial positional bargaining mm. situation because both parties have quite different objectives and interests. And yes. once you elucidate that, then everyone's like, well, that's fine. Great. When can you start? And I'm, I'm glad we've had the discussion. Well, it occurs to me that one of the things a person could do is consult an employment lawyer or somebody who has a specialty and say, could you please suggest to me what the alternative wording could be so that when you do approach an employer, you've kind of taken away that whole discussion of, yeah, you don't have to send this back to a lawyer and get you know all the correct wording. I've actually got something I'd like to propose that's already there, which I guess would make the situation easier. Absolutely. And what's also really useful in engaging with a lawyer is especially if you're trying to, you know, you're about to commence what could be a very long and productive working relationship with the employer is, is the lawyer doesn't have to be front and center. And in fact, the lawyer, I mean, some of the best work the lawyers do is in the background. It's, it's mm. ghost writing emails. It's neatly coming up with conciliatory and helpful language that sets out the, the true intentions of a party. Mm. It's not like here is our letterhead we are doing this, your contract is stupid. Yes. It's never like that. The smart approach is someone in the background, carefully adjusting clauses, yes. patiently and clearly explaining why the changes have been made and setting a very clear path to a reasonable outcome. Is it a common thing that you as an employment lawyer would serve the employees who may be not attached to an organisation? You mentioned that before, that you're often in service to the organisation, but is it a kind of a common thing that a person could ring up an employment lawyer and reasonably expect them to help them as an, a potential employee or a current employee? Look, absolutely. So you'd, you'd want to find someone who specialises in employment law. So mm. law, like any other field, has specialists. And employment law is one of those specialties. And I imagine um, that comes with the right jurisdiction too, that things vary yeah, from yeah, a state but, point of view or a country point of view. Yeah, absolutely. So the only question that a, that a lawyer can actually ask before accepting the job is to say, well, hold on, do we act for the employer? And provided they don't, there's no conflict, then they should be able to give an estimate for the work that they'll do. And mm -hmm. 
that individual should be able to engage them. So a likely range of fees would be, you know, to look at a contract and give some advice would be, well, at the very lowest would be like $500 and then mm-hmm. maybe up to two or $3,000. So yes. it's not inexpensive, but mm. it's one of those points where if you are curious about it and you want to find the answer, I mean, certainly there's lots of information available out there and you might have your people in your own networks mm. who've got some really great tips on it. But if that seems like a good use of money, then I'd really encourage people to get in touch with or indeed ask their friends who they've used and then mm. to say, look, do you know a good lawyer? And and often some of the, the warmest sort of referrals you can get as a lawyer is someone goes, so-and-so who you did a job for gave me your name. And nice. from my end, if, if I hear that from someone, then I'm like, great, I'll definitely help you out because that makes it easy for me to do because there's already that trust. Yes. That was occurring to me that trust is really important in terms of what advice you give me, whether I can use it and whether you kind of see and understand where I'm coming from and that you have my back in that process. Absolutely. And what you're also getting with a lawyer is, yes, the expertise as to how the law works and those issues really only arise if there's some big dispute. But what you're really getting is someone who can identify for your situation the best strategy to get the outcome mm. that you want. And it's often that, as I was saying before, Helen, that careful, patient drafting mm. in clear language to get the outcome that the person wants. And I imagine if you did that once with an employment lawyer, you're actually learning and empowering yourself for maybe the next time where you won't need it because you've had some of those tips and things that you've applied and seen how successful they are. Absolutely. And it's also one of those relationships which is good to have professionally, Mm. like it's good to have a good plumber, carpenter, GP, accountant. That's a great piece of advice. Yeah. To say, look, oh, hold on. I've now, someone else has has proposed a consultancy agreement with me or someone wants to get into partnership with me or there's this opportunity, what legal things do I need to be aware of? And if you have that ongoing or existing relationship, Mm pick up the phone and they can put you in touch with someone who can assist. So mm. you're already sort of half the way to getting the advice that you need. Well, I also imagine if it was the case that your organisation was starting to change policies around hybrid working and flexible working arrangements or exploring, uh, you know, four-day working weeks, a big one that's being talked about here in Australia at the moment. If you have that relationship, then if you don't think the organization's moving as fast as you want, or you have concerns about how this maybe is in conflict with what's in your contract, then you could have that discussion. Because I suspect you're probably better to have that discussion with an independent lawyer than you are necessarily the HR manager, who I would say is generally there to serve the organization. Look, absolutely. And the other thing I've really got to acknowledge here as well is the really important role that unions can play as well in mm-hmm helping people understand their rights and entitlements. Now, yes. that's not going to be relevant for, for all of your listeners, but for those of your listeners who are in an industry that has got a union which is involved, they are a very cost-effective way of accessing that support as well. Even if um, you're not a member of a union? Well, they will like you to become a member, but the yes. cost of membership might compare favourably. But then right. again, but I, just, I, I really mentioned, I guess, the union movement more generally mm. is a really great source of information as well as advocacy, noting, however, that what they might wish to achieve might necessarily be the question that you want asked um, or answered rather, but Mm. there's that point and the amount of information 
which is freely available, is staggering, of course, mm. but it's one of those ones you need to be careful of because yes. assessing rather the currency and the suitability of that information for you is always mm. a bit hit and miss. I think the um, role of a union is an interesting one because it exists for the collective to, and that's why unions came into being, to have that collective bargaining power. So you had a level of safety that you weren't going to be picked on individually or you didn't have to take on the might of an organisation by yourself. Conversely, though, it also means it's about the collective good and doesn't necessarily take into account your individual situation and what you individually want. That's fair, yes. I know for myself there's been times the kinds of work that I'm in doesn't necessarily have a union or if it does, it's I'm on the kind of the periphery. And I've had to tangle with that myself in terms of what value is a union for me. But I appreciate, too, that there are some sectors where there is often an award associated with it as well, which has a lot of information about what people's entitlements are under the award, whereas the kind of work that I've been doing has not been under an award. No, that's right. And, and that's where you really are left with what the contract says and what you have feel that you've got agency and the strategy to achieve in approaching a negotiation. Yeah. In terms of if I was having an issue with the scope or nature of my working relationship with an organisation while I'm currently an employee, what role would you expect internal HR to play? They have the core responsibility to receive concerns and to work with you to get an outcome that Mm -hmm. is appropriate for you and the organisation. So your organisation should have a grievance policy or at least, or some framework through which employees or individuals can raise issues of concern. And certainly yep. it really must have a path for such complaints if it relates to interpersonal conduct or unwelcome comments or conduct of a sexual nature. Absolutely. Because those broader questions of, for example, I'm languishing or Mm. I'm literally going nowhere or Mm. I don't feel my colleagues are contributing to the same degree that I am, are much more nuanced discussions. Yes, indeed. We all hope that we work in cultures that embrace the sensitivities and the challenge of those topics. Mm. However, the reality is that most don't Mm. or many of us don't. So how you raise concerns, you need to be sometimes a little bit more reflective than you might wish to be. Yes. Certainly choosing your audience and being patient with the process is really, really good. Mm. And often as well, I I have given advice, and this is more advice that I might give to friends or friends of friends who might Mm. approach me about those more nuanced conflict or, you know, those difficult issues. And Mm. if they've tried after a period of time and, and effort to, achieve a better outcome but they haven't and they're still you know hitting their head against a wall then my very practical advice is often leave Mm. Uh, it's not it's not the place for you yes it it was then it may not be anymore yes take agency and look for the next thing because you can sometimes change things but if if a boss or if people in power aren't going anywhere Mm. and you're there flailing around without any outcome it's just going to be a take an enormous toll mm. and one that really isn't warranted although i more than understand that that some people don't have the flexibility to look for new roles so mm. they need to try and 
seek those resolutions internally. Yes. But it's a tougher conversation, that one, absolutely. Yeah. Well, it occurs to me when you were saying it's a good thing to have an employment lawyer as a sort of in your professional support team, that equally in that team, and think of it as a team, could be a coach of some kind and who might be able to coach you through those more nuanced things. They won't necessarily have the legal perspective and they won't be taking it through a legal lens necessarily, but they may give you some insights, some advice to help you with some understanding where you sit in those conversations, but also what steps you might take to navigate through them. Yeah, I, and so relationships like having a coach certainly externally can give you that sort of independence and the and mm. the objectivity. Certainly mental relationships and other networks within your organisation are very strong. You know, to say, look, you've been here a while. How do you suggest I approach this? And they might say, I'd do it this way. And certainly Mm. that's the lifeblood of organisations and how issues get informally communicated, especially if there isn't perhaps maybe an idealised culture Mm. where those issues are frequently discussed, constructively raised and a solution is generated. And also, you know, your your broader friendship networks as well. So yeah. men in particular, we're very bad at disclosing issues of conflict and when, mm. you know, work and, and maybe your identity and you might identify as the breadwinner in your family mm. when it's not all going so well. We love to say work's busy, work's fantastic. It's, you know, yes. I've been so busy. And in reality, maybe you have been languishing. Maybe you're getting frozen out of opportunity. So if you can feel comfortable to raise those topics with people that, that you trust, they mm. will embrace that discussion. They will give you some insight and it might be, well, do you know what? There's someone that I think you should speak with. And, yes. and I like to try and do that as well, Helen. If someone raises a concern of how do I deal with this? I might say, look, I don't know how to deal with that, but I know someone who's really good at it. Yes. Well, it occurs to me in in thinking about you, you they say it takes a village to raise a child. It's like you can have your own village in the workscape who's there to support you. They don't have to be members of the organization. It may be a former colleague or a former boss who knows you and knows your working style and knows you in a work context. Because I think sometimes we overburden our friends and our family members with things. They're like, seriously, that's your job. That doesn't have to do anything with me. Stop bringing that stress home. Go, Go find somebody it might even be in a community of practice or a, maybe you belong to a member association. So it's not a union, but a group of people who understand your industry or the discipline or the practice in which you're in. But these are all different avenues where you can get insight about what's going on, what would I like to have going on, how can I think that through, find some advice to navigate. Absolutely. And the really good associations in those groups are now more than ever creating opportunities for people to meet face-to-face, which is excellent, Mm. and for people to reconnect with each other after quite a long period of absence. So one of the things as well that I'd encourage everyone to do, and I'm reflecting on it now as well, is to rekindle those networks, especially Mm. colleagues and friends interstate, and just to really understand just the real breadth of all your connections. and, Mm. And, you know, as you do progress in your career, you do gain a lot of people who would willingly spend some time to talk through an issue indeed, Mm. or you may be able to help them as well. 
And I think sometimes just that talking through the issue can take the emotional angst out of it, which might be where, and you mentioned before, that adversarial nature, that sometimes when people are at a high level of emotional intensity, it's like, I want to get them back or, you know, whether it's revenge fantasies, at which point I'm grabbing a lawyer and I'm escalating this to that more adversarial thing is that consider there's a spectrum on which you might be operating. And it's not to say don't talk to a lawyer or involve a lawyer, but maybe be really clear on who you want to be and how you want things to go if you were involving a lawyer. Mm, absolutely. So just as we come to a close, what advice would you give your less experienced wise self in terms of entering into a relationship with an organization around these contractual type things? What to look out for or do? Is there anything you've learned where, yeah, I wish I'd known that when I was first starting out? Reading contracts is always a good idea. Mm-hmm. That's, Actually, that's just the, reading the one that you've got instead of just signing it? Is that what you mean? Reading the one that you've got. And I think especially if, if you're coming to a role with, with some seniority and some independence and a, and a life already lived and, and a whole host of skills, then maybe clauses like restraint are very important for you. So, for mm. example, those restraint clauses can be very broad. And they might say, you know, Will, after you leave us, you can't work, you know, as a lawyer for 12 months. Now, very unlikely that a court would actually uphold that and also an employer might never insist on that right being followed or honoured by an employee because mm. they've never thought about it and it's part of the sacred text of the contract, you know, yes. borrowing that language from before. But <laughs> I love the way you say that. But those clauses can have significant impact and they can also have impact on you when, you know, you might have hoped that this is going to be my role for the next five years, but mm. it turns out that maybe because of one of these intractable personality or other conflicts you need to go and then you're looking at a contract and then you get advice and it says well you can't work in the disability care sector in right. victoria for 12 months and you're like well how am i meant to su survive and support myself yeah. so i would look at those clauses about restraint and confidentiality really carefully yes and i would also think about well what aspects of this am i happy with because mm. everything there it is up for negotiation now some things you wouldn't want to negotiate about. Hmm. Some things might be really great, but don't hesitate to ask questions and to read the agreement. Hmm. And the main thing as well about any taking a role anywhere is to do your research on the culture. What's it yes. actually like to work there? And it's a bit of a black box from the outside, any, hmm. any employer. Yeah. So if you've got those networks, if you've maintained them or if you've rekindled them, then that can be great to so say, look, you know, do you know anyone who's worked at X or who has who's reported to such and such. And they can say, um, no, I don't, but my friend did. And then yes. you can have a conversation and you'll be that better pushed. Mm. And look, as well, negotiate for more money. Go for yep. it. Like yep. That's the other thing which is always up for grabs. Probably within a range of, say, 5 to 10%, yes. maybe more, maybe less. But if you can benchmark that against some other intelligence that, again, you can, might get mm. from your network, then you're in a much better position than had you not done that work. Well, and that's a good case for be talking to those other people so that you find out that kind of uh, understanding or where the benchmarks might be in your industry. Absolutely. Yeah. I like the point that you were making about reading the contract and it occurs to me, I'm just going to extend that by saying, if you are feeling, I don't know what I don't know, ask somebody who you trust, maybe a person who's got more experience to read over the contract, not necessarily from the point of a legal view, but simply knowing you of what questions you might need to explore or dig deeper and in research. Because yeah, if you don't know what you don't know, and if the sacred text sounds very legalese, it can be very easy to 
think, gosh, I shouldn't touch with this because it is that sacred text where it's like, actually, no, there are questions I could ask or maybe there's assumptions I've just skipped over here that are worth surfacing, though it might, might never have done that. And I, I think of a young person in my circle who used me for that role recently. And I said to them, hang on, I know you to be a person of this and this. That would give me pause around this clause here. What do you want this to achieve? And yeah, they hadn't, it was actually around IP. They hadn't actually considered that and it gave them the impetus to go back and have the conversation with the employer. Oh, and the other point that's right on that, Helen, is this. Sometimes you can see contracts where there are different notice periods. So mm. maybe the employer yeah. can turn that on four weeks notice, but you, the employee, have to give three months notice. Now, mm. if you sign up to that, you've signed up to it. But it's one of those points where you could write back without any advice and say, look, hold on. What's good for the goose is good for the gander here. Yeah. Let's have it, let's have it mutual. And in fact, all obligations generally should be mutual in, in any agreement. Like yeah. if you do this, I've got to do likewise. So yeah. just your general reading and understanding, am I okay with this? Is the first question. The second one could be, is there someone in my network with greater expertise? Great. Mm. And the third one maybe that broader cultural question of like, yes. how can I see inside the black box that is working out? Yes. Companies such and such. Yeah. And I love that point you're making about that mutuality, because for me, when I talk to other people, part of the self unlimited idea is, yes, the organization's got its own interests and it's going to serve it. You have your own interests and you can serve them, too. And what if you came together in a symbiotic relationship where you are both getting something out of it rather than it being. And I think that's where maybe the tension is back to the original point between the master and the servant. People might think, oh, you know, Downton Abbey, I'm thinking those servants didn't have much of a say. And I think, well, it, maybe it's about getting over, well, I'm allowed to be the master of my workscape. That doesn't mean I'm the master of exactly what goes on this organization. But in being my own sovereign, I should have a view on what I will tolerate, won't tolerate, what is important to have in their contract, at which point I'm like, no, I'm drawing the line. I'm out of here and going somewhere else. Look, I think Downton Abbey could be explored from a number of perspectives. Like, that's right. Mr. Mosley did not have a lot of assertiveness. Maybe he should have. Mr. Barrow, on the other hand, was very yes. assertive, or indeed certainly found his feet. And Mr. Carson, of course, indeed. was incredibly assertive. Um, indeed. You used that word before, agency, and people might think, I don't have control. It's like, you can have an awful lot of influence. Yeah. Oh, I'm really thinking of uh, Downton Abbey now. Oh, so good. <laughs> When you started it off with a play, I felt like we should end on maybe some sort of dramatic narrative as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I haven't, I've seen them all. Um, I was a little bit disappointed with the one where they went over to France. I thought that was a bit silly, but I love the Christmas special before when the King and Queen came. I yes. thought the France one was a bit thin. But yes. that's, look, my opinion, I can say it. <laughs> it's always eye-opening. Well, this has been a very eye-opening conversation. Thank you so much for taking part and sharing your knowledge and advice. Thanks a lot for having me. It's been really fun. Workscapes are changing everywhere. For more goodness to change your workscape, visit www.beselfunlimited.com 